This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Today is World Heritage Day. I propose to talk about uh, an obsessive pervasive interest really in heritage and heritage studies all over the world over the last uh, two decades in India in particular heritage and its studies has picked up quite a few universities uh, have launched their heritage studies and research centers a new trend nonetheless I'd like to take you back to the mid 90s to a paper that uh, historian and geographer David Lowenthal wrote about this um, ascendance of heritage studies in England and America to begin with, a phase that has arrived in in India over the last 10 or so years. Um, David Lowenthal passed away in um, 2018, really, at the ripe age of 19 Five, in a lecture that he gave in University College London, he once said, and I quote, heritage is not history. Heritage is what people make of their history to make themselves feel good. He contrasted the way that individual nations and tribes imagine their own heritage with the conception recently promoted by international organizations most notably UNESCO, that heritage must be universal and for the good of all. Lowenthal was born in America, but he was British by inclination and work. He was um, a professor of geography at UCL in 1972 and retired as emeritus professor in 1986. Apart from UNESCO, um, he advised... uh, World Monuments Fund, English Heritage, the U.S. National Trust for Historic Preservation, and the National Trust of Australia. He was never afraid of controversy and presented cogent opinions on a host of topics. He helped make heritage studies a proper, acceptable academic discipline in its own right. In fact, uh, he um, helped found in UCL, the Center for Critical Heritage Studies. He pointed to the way history seeks to identify the truths while heritage exaggerates and omits, invents, and at times forgets in order to fabricate prejudiced pride in the past. He made uh, this and a number of other points uh, in a landmark book called The Heritage Crusade, and the spoils of history. I um, propose to take you back to one of the major essays that uh, he wrote in that book. He was talking about the fresh rise of the cult of heritage. Heritage is as old as humanity. Prehistoric peoples bequeathed goods and goals. 
they, they, they passed on a benign and malign legacies. But regard for roots and recollection permeates the Western world and also the rest of the world. Nostalgia for things old and outworn replaces dreams of progress and development. He was referring to a trend in uh, the 1990s, really, since the 1980s. And he says that a century or even 50 years ago, the untrammeled future was all the rage. Everyone was investing in progress, in future. Today, we laud legacies bequeathed by has-beens. Once the term patrimony, and here's, um, I ask for your indulgence, the term patrimony implied provincial backwardness or musty antiquarianism. Now, it denotes nurturance and stewardship. Heritage, however, is not our sole link with the past. History, tradition, memory, myth, and memoir variously join us with what has passed, with forefathers, with our own earlier selves. But the lure, the appeal of heritage now outsmarts and outpaces all other modes of retrieval. If our era heralds the end of history, loosely speaking, um, Fukuyama had in fact said that in the early, early 90s, perhaps the eclipse of history heralds the rise of heritage. Heritage may be heir to the continuous nourishing tradition that history probably abdicated. Yet, these diverse roots to the past are neither fixed nor firmly bounded. They overlap and shift their focus. But neither history nor tradition ever commanded uh, the kind of ubiquitous rich and respect and interest that heritage generates today. Never before have so many been so engaged with so many different pasts spanning the centuries from prehistory to last night. Heritage melds Mesozoic monsters with Marilyn Monroe, Egyptian pyramids with Elvis Presley. Memorials and monuments multiply. Cities and scenes are restored. Historic exploits are reenacted. Retro fashion rages and camcorders memorialize yesterday. Historic sites multiply from thousands to millions. As a matter of fact, 95% of existing museums post-date the Second World War. 50 years back, book titles and indexes suggested that Herited dealt mostly on heredity. It, it sort of referred to things like probate law and taxation. It had to deal with properties, inheritances meant inheriting properties. Now, the term has a new meaning. It now features antiquities. And when I say 50 years, um, I actually mean 70 years. Uh, Lowenthal was writing in the 1990s. So the word heritage now means antiquities, identity, belonging. Um, there's this word in French, patrimony, which is close enough to English heritage. So um, that is 
uh, the dictionary meaning of the term patrimony in French literally means goods inherited from parents to embrace bequests from remote forbearers and cultural legacies in general. We derive all we possess as an inheritance from our forefathers. Edmund Burke once said 200 years ago, now uh, inheritance determines our very selves. Prior possession, uh, once primarily legitimized title to land or money. Today, it sanctions claims to sites and relics, stressing traditions that are especially our own. Heritage magnifies self-esteem and bolsters communal fervor. Modern preoccupation with heritage sites or heritage practically dates from about 1980s um, in Reagan's America, Thatcher's Britain and Pompidou's France. Global popularity also tends to homogenize the idea of heritage. Its aims and traits are assessed in similar terms in Bergen and Beirut or Bombay. The same concerns with precedence and antiquity, continuity and coherence, heroism and sacrifice appear again and again. Uh, nursing family bonds, strengthening loyalty, and, and emphasizing leadership and stewardship, guardianship. Most heritage is amassed by particular groups, but uh, media diffusion and global networks make these hordes even more um, common circulation. So why does heritage loom so large today? What is involved is a cluster of trends whose premises promises and problems are truly global. These trends create isolation and dislocation of self from family, family from neighborhood and neighborhood from nation, and even oneself from one's former selves. Such changes reflect manifold aspects of life, increasing longevity, family dissolution, loss of familiar surroundings, quickened obsolescence, genocide, and wholesale migration, and a growing fear of technology. They reduce, significantly reduce, indeed erode expectations from future, and heightens um, a sense of awareness about the past, and inject among millions uh, the impression that they need and they, they are owed a heritage. So beleaguered by loss and change, we keep our bearings only by clinging to remnants of stability. Hence, preservers' aversion to letting anything go, the mania for period styles, cults of prehistory at megalithic sites, and so forth. Mourning past neglect, we cherish islands of security and stability amid a sea of change. Now, of course, we kept losing things in the past as well, but those losses now seem more serious than ever before. UNESCO, for instance, declared in 1972 that a piece of change peculiar to our times endangered mankind's cultural and natural heritage and mandated its protection. 
So those who wrote uh, the English uh, syllabus curriculum, for instance, in 1993, appraised the time-honored lore as a cultural link with long-valued past as essential in these turbulent times. Yet, horror at displacement, change, or upheaval is not new. Each generation since the French Revolution has felt buffeted by turbulent times. Marx's 1848 Communist Manifesto noted, and I quote, constant revolution of productions, the uninterrupted disturbance of all social relations, ideas becoming obsolete before they can ossify, unquote. Our great-great-grandparents were more severed from their past than we are. As to two centuries of change, schooled to expect, and until recently, even to welcome innovation. Um, it is a common belief that technical invention has soared without precedent in recent decades. But is it true? Have television, internet, computers, nuclear power, artificial intelligence, and so on, altered life more in our time than did the auto, automobile, telephone, electric light, airplane, radio, and cinema between 1900 and 1950, or, or uh, the railroads, gas lights, steamships, telegraph, factory-made clothing, and household goods, which transformed the Western world between 1800 and 1860. No one from the 1750s could have imagined the new world of 1800. So our precursors were no less estranged by novelty or regretting lost familiar vistas, uh, just as we do. But they were less, less ceaselessly reminded of their loss. Nor did a socially certified nostalgia sanction their yearnings. On the contrary, uh, they were enjoined to praise the new and take change in their stride. But modern media, magnifying the past's remoteness, we digest and domesticate written accounts as we read them. But even recent visual images at once strike us as anachronistic out of our time. Growing longevity cuts us off even from our own pasts. Many who reach 90 are technically, quote unquote, punished for their great age. A columnist uh, once wrote, and I quote, by being reminded that they are out of touch with the world, unquote. So those poised between two worlds or two ways of thinking and acting find heritage of a great deal of uh, significance. Massive migration also sharpens nostalgia. This century's diaspora have suffered incomparable displacement, fleeing violence, hatred, hunger, Tens of millions seek refuge in lands not on their own. Mass exodus has many precedents, to be sure. But refugee exodus, up tenfold in 20 years, is now a global commonplace. Quest for roots reflect this trauma. Heritage is invoked to requite displacement. Provincial newcomers to French cities haunt archival registers for family links. The more people are on the move, the more they will grasp at tangible memorials of their collective past. 
Heritage is also nursed by technophobia. The horrors of fascism, the failure of Marxism, the threat of nuclear and biological catastrophe, the rise of factional uh, fights have uh, literally put paid to the technology, to the ideology of progress. Many doubt their leader's vision or ability to sustain a livable globe. Dismayed by technology, they hark back to a simpler past whose virtues they inflate and whose vices they ignore. Like this new clientele, the past doted on is populist. Earlier, it used to be about grand monuments, unique treasures, and great heroes. Now, heritage is about uh, the typical and evokes the vernacular. The homes and haunts of every man and every woman have spread from Scandinavian open-air museums into historical theme parks the world over. Traditionally controlled by the rich and the well-born, heritage remains, even now, more of an elite than a folk pastime. But the later, the folk um, every day is far more carefully preserved. Historic house visitors nowadays flock to kitchens and servant and slave quarters. Folk museums stress the humdrum over the exquisite, the ordinary in place of the unusual, the popular rather than the patrician. So genealogy typifies this populist trend. Millions of root seekers swamp archives and registries. In America, by the mid-1980s, there appeared close to 50,000 family tree experts. A 1988 survey noted that not long ago, most Europeans would have stared blankly if asked to give their great-grandmother's name. And genealogy was a hobby for aristocrats and eccentrics. Now, all forebearers are upgraded to ancestors. France's 300 authorized genealogists grew to 20,000, and hunting for ancestors has become a veritable national sport in France, America, Europe, and elsewhere in the world. Along with the recent and the vernacular, heritage today traces intangible folkways, kinship, language, poetry, music. Such concerns are not new. Indeed, two centuries ago, the philosopher Harder made language and folklore the crux of collective heritage. Yet, during the 19th and early 20th centuries, national patrimony came to inhere more and more intangible monuments and memorials. Even now, heritage crusades are more apt to conjure up images of castles and cathedrals than of uh, cockery or cookery. But legacy concerns now refocus on ideas and images. Probably it reflects or follows improved techniques of enhancing the quality and value of of images. Um, It also reflects the influence of cultures that do not share the Western mania for material objects as heritage. For example, Korea cherishes masked plays, musical genres, and skills like knot making, brass melting, and pot glazing, and so on. 
Japan's living cultural treasures enact similar roles in a culture that admires ancient forms and skills, but does not really care for old buildings. So um, intangible folkways now have mainstream patrons copying Japan and Korea, the US National Endowment for the Arts Awards Annual Heritage Fellowships, um, and so on. So hunger for heritage takes diverse forms, the poor and the powerless, and this is ironic, the poor and the powerless market any antiquities they can unearth. Millions of, of Guatemalans, Mexicans, Peruvians, Italians, Lebanese and others um, make a living by selling off ancestral pasts. Such dispositions are legion. But what is really past for those who don't have a secure presence? Westernized Javanese, sundered from indigenous roots under the Dutch rule, felt like exiles in their own land. Sicily remains always a colony, never a country. Near Syracuse, the faceless, limbless stumps of a dozen statues of the goddess Cybele hacked to pieces by a peasant, tired of tourists trampling his onions, attest. And what does he have to say? The danger presented by a people that feels that its past does not belong to it. Even those intimately snatched or attached to their past may, may yet sell it. Expert uh, tomb robbers in Sicily and Tuscany feel fully justified in smuggling their heritage to Swiss dealers. They consider that those tombs contain the bodies of their ancestors, and they are therefore entitled to their contents, <laughs> explains uh, an antiques official. We value our heritage more when it seems at risk. Threats of loss encourage owners to stewardship. Just as impending civil war impelled the 17th century antiquary Thomas Dugdale to record England's imperiled ecclesiastical monuments, so did the menace of the Second World War mobilize the art historian Clenet Clark's colleagues to record the national legacy. Heritage never means more to us, uh, once a British art historian uh, who was looking at uh, a constable painting at Yale said, than when we see it inherited by someone else. England's heritage owes much, really, to a student binge at historic Oxfordshire about 1930. So there was um, this man, James Liss Milne, and he was watching a drunken host take pot shots at garden statuary and family portraits. He was offended. So he developed a kind of compassion. He probably had already a deep compassion for architecture, ancient architecture, so vulnerable and transient, and some paternal instinct to protect and safeguard all tangible works of art. He became the guiding spirit of uh, the National Trust uh, Country House Crusade. So that's when the British country houses began to be counted as heritage, and uh, there was a drive to conserve them as, as heritage. 
So um, heritage loss and recovery are better understood as ongoing routine than um, a plight, a perilous plight. To expunge the obsolete and restore it as heritage are, like disease and its treatment, conjoined processes, less discordant than symbiotic. When a nuclear accident destroys Britain, in a story by um, David Ailey, a massive campaign restores the whole peopled island. Every stick and stone, every blade of grass, every hedge and bush, every mansion, palace, hut and hovel, insects too, and every vermin, everything. So restoration technically unwittingly justifies destruction. It brought manifold benefits. History learned, relics conserved, stewardship lauded, and global tensions abetted. <laughs> and that story concludes, uh, and I quote, it might be useful to vaporize and then restore one nation every generation that would ease the population pressure and provide a harmless outlet for human energy both at the same time. But that's another story. That's a fiction. At the moment, to come back to the present, the past feels more accessible, more controversial, more vulnerable than ever before. Heritage appetite appears to outrun heritage growth. Awareness of its fragility endears what we inherit, but our very embrace also uh, dooms it. We kill what we love. Ever more popular, heritage tends to become ever more perishable. This is the kind of tension we do not pay attention to. We are often enthusiastic about preserving heritage, but we do not know what to do with it. Heritage must encourage us to work at a sense of understanding with the past within which we locate ourselves as part of a present. I'll be back with more on heritage and Lowenthal's writing very soon. Till then, I'd like you to mull over these points that he had made as far back as uh, the 90s with regards to uh, the enhanced, extremely enthusiastic and fascinating um, interest in our heritage in contemporary India. Yeah.